There we go. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and stand up and we'll all say the Shema together. If you've been with us uh, throughout the uh, summer, we always start off by saying the Shema. Um, this is um, the Lord's words to um, Israel. So hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. All right, so today on our very last day, we have been uh, for the last couple of weeks um, talking about Jerusalem and kind of Jesus's final days. Uh, we talked about what Jerusalem looked like in the Old Testament and then what it looked like um, in Jesus's time in, um, in the New Testament around the first century. And so today we're gonna talk about an area just adjacent to Jerusalem um, called the Mount of Olives. Um, and we're gonna talk about the anguish of Jesus today. So I want to show you first a few pictures about what the Mount of Olives looks like today. This was probably one of my face, uh, favorite places when I visited Israel. It was um, absolutely beautiful, very serene, one of those places that just really stuck with me and made um, the story of Jesus and his suffering um, and just the anguish that he went through on the night he was betrayed. It made it so much more alive to me. So hopefully you'll get a sense of that uh, today. So this is um, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, and we'll talk about the difference between the Mount of Olives and Gethsemane in just a minute. Um, and this over here, this is uh, the, the wall surrounding Jerusalem. And then over here, we're standing um, on the Mount of Olives on the place called um, Gethsemane. Um, and you can see the Kidron Valley that we have talked so much about where um, that river ran that they diverted to Hezekiah's Tunnel. That would have run right through here between Jerusalem on this side and then the Mount of Olives up here. And then Bethany and Bethpage both were places right around the Mount of Olives. Um, now this was called, um, it was um, in Acts 1, it is called a Sabbath stay journey from Jerusalem. And I didn't know what that meant at first. I was like, well, it seems, it seems pretty short. I'm not sure um, why it would be called a day's journey, but a Sabbath stay journey is a little bit different. You're not allowed to walk as far on the Sabbath. And so you can only go about 2000 um, cubits, which is roughly three quarters of a mile. So once I read that, that made more sense. I was like, yep, this is definitely the same place. Um, it's just right outside the city gates there. Um, so this, again, this view is standing on the Mount of Olives looking at Jerusalem. Um, and it is about 80 meters higher than the city of Jerusalem. And so when you're on this, we're kind of at the bottom of the Mount of Olives here, but if you're closer to the top, it would have offered views overlooking the city and kind of overlooking the actual temple. So this is the Mount of Olives from the city of David. So where I'm standing right here is a little ledge that's on uh, where they're excavating at the city of David. And I'm looking across to the Mount of Olives. And it's really hard to see, but this little shiny dot right here, this is a, a Russian Orthodox church. And down here, just beneath it, is the Church of All Nations, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But that kind of orients you as well. And you can see um, this very steep slope, the valley up here, and then it climbs up again so we have the two hills with the valley beneath um, and in this picture it's a little hard to see we'll see if anybody can guess what it is um, does anybody have any idea what all this white nothingness is over here that hasn't been if you've been to Jerusalem don't don't answer don't cheat maybe we can see it a little bit better here. So this is just a zoomed in. This is um, that church. And then all of these over here, they are, they are graves. Um, so 
um, the Mount of Olives has been used as, um, actually, I think we'll, we'll show that on a later slide, but it has been used as a, um, a burial site since um, for 3,000 years. So a thousand years before Jesus was walking around um, in Jerusalem, that was already being used as, um, as a place for burial. And we'll get into that a little bit later, but um, there's a great picture in just a minute that shows better, but there are just um, tombs as absolutely as far as you can see. Is that green part in the middle, is that the garden of um, On the other side, actually. So this is owned by the, um, I believe it's by um, the church here. And then there's a church on this side that owns um, garden space over here as well. Um, so the church owns the area that's green, the rest of it. Um, and all of those graves are Jewish graves. Um, some, a handful of them might be Christian graves, but for the, the large majority of them are going to be Jewish graves. And we'll get into why that is in a little bit. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, there's a place there called the Church of the Nations um, that we got to visit and go inside, and it is absolutely stunning. So the Church of the Nations is a Catholic-owned church, uh, but it's called the Church of the Nations because it's used ecumenically. And so in a lot of Catholic churches, uh, for instance, you can't do, you can't share Mass um, if you go to a Catholic church unless you have been baptized in the Catholic faith. Um, however, at this Church of All Nations, um, they really believe that because this is such a holy site and because this is a place where um, all people that follow Jesus want to come, um, they have opened it up and made it more of an ecumenical site and there is an altar that is for everyone uh, there as well and it's kind of hard to see um, this is the roof um, or the ceiling inside of the church um, and it's there's six um, or, or eight of these domes and inside just this gorgeous intricate uh, mosaic work uh, so these are all olive branches um, from the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane and then inside of each one, you will find the seal to uh, various nations, uh, all the nations that uh, were were in the world at the time that this church was built. Um, so again, very ecumenical. Uh, it's kind of hard to see in this picture, but here's one of the windows to the side, and you can see how the stained glass down here is uh, like a purple or blue color. That was very intentional. This place is very dark. It's got a twilight sort of feel. They want you to um, kind of get in, I guess, the, the mood of that night, the betrayal, being alone in the garden at night. And so it is very dark, um, but you've got the stars and the light uh, from the mosaic. It's absolutely stunning. Um, and then right outside of that, there is um, a grove of these beautiful, massive olive trees. So if you've never seen an olive tree, this is what one looks like. And I put this verse up here. There shall come forth a shoot from the branch of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So the way the olive, tree, olive trees work um, in the way that they kind of propagate themselves is by making little shoots um, out. So from down along here, a new shoot would just kind of pop up and make a new tree. Um, and so this tree is actually hollow inside because it grows out and out and out and what's inside doesn't get sunlight and so it dies. And so these new shoots keep growing up from the outside. Um, and these are probably pretty well pruned to keep them in the garden. Um, but you could see if it, was, if it was not, they would just kind of be popping up all out the side out here making a wider and wider tree. Now they have done some um, carbon dating and things like that to see how old these trees are. Um, and, and history or um, kind of um, uh, church 
legend has said that some of these trees were here when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they have done carbon dating to show that many of these trees uh, were, are roughly around a thousand years old. However, because of the shoot system and the way that those trees branch out, it is entirely possible that these trees came from trees that were there um, during Jesus's time, that that center part has just faded away over time and that um, new shoots have come up over time um, from that very same root of the tree that might have been there when Jesus was praying um, in the garden. Yes, yes. And it's, um, I mean, this massive system of roots. And so you would, it's not one tree and you just kind of dig it up. You would, you would have to get all of the roots and they kind of spread out. Um, almost, have any of you, any of you grew up in Texas might know what like a live oak tree is and how they kind of form this stand uh, and they all have the same root system. Um, the olive trees would, would be very similar to that. Any other questions so far? All right, so we'll talk a little bit about what uh, the Mount of Olives was um, in the Old Testament. So there's only two mentions of the Mount of Olives in the Old Testament. Um, one is uh, David fled here during a coup attempt by Absalom. So Absalom wants to be king. Um, David is king. He is uh, kind of seeking the favor of some high up people. He's kind of lying to some people and he's trying to, to turn the hearts of um, the Israelites towards him um, and away from David. And so he is somewhat successful momentarily and uh, David flees here up to the Mount of Olives and it says that he's crying the entire way. Um, and all the people that are with him because David is barefoot in, um, in ashes and, and crying in the entire way, they're also mourning with him. Um, and they're not just mourning um, the fact that David may lo no longer be king. Uh, David loved Absalom. Um, he, he, that, I mean, that was his son. Um, this, was, um, this was somebody that he loved, and even though he was trying to usurp him, um, he still was in mourning about um, the way that his son was behaving, and uh, he would later be very distraught about Absalom's death. So that is one brief mention. And then the other mention is in Zechariah 14. Um, and this is why um, we have all of the tombstones. Uh, so in Zechariah 14, it says, on that day, speaking of the day of the Lord, um, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountain shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time, there shall be light on the day. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. 
on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So this is this um, somewhat scary and awe-inspiring scene of the day of the Lord, which in the prophets was the day that the Lord would return. And there's this sense of wrath, this sense that um, all of those that weren't following um, what Christ uh, or what uh, God had called people to would be cast away. And all of those um, that were God's chosen ones would be gathered together um, and protected by God. Um, and this says that that will happen and will start at the Mount of Olives. And keep in mind, um, the prophet are telling people in Jerusalem, uh, some of you may not make the cut, the way that you're acting, the way that you're living. And then some of these people from, from all over other nations, um, from far north, from east, from the west, these people that you think may not uh, be worth the time of day, God's going to also gather up and call his people as well. And so um, they believe, many Jews believe, um, that the resurrection or um, when the day of the Lord is going to start at the Mount of Olives and then spread outward. And so the reason that people bring their dead to be buried at the Mount of Olives is because they do believe in the resurrection. They do believe that their bodies will be resurrected. And so they want to be as close as possible to where that uh, is first going to start. They'll be the first ones raised and then it'll spread outward. Um, and then as I was looking through some of these pictures, um, I noticed there were, this is just a little tidbit, it doesn't have anything to do with the class, but on, on all of these graves, I didn't see flowers or anything like that, but I noticed there were these stones, sometimes the size of your fist, sometimes a little bit bigger, sitting on top of many of the graves. And I wondered, you know, those couldn't have just been, you know, blown there by the wind, they're too big. Um, so I wondered what that was about. and. Um, and faithful Jews, uh, when they visit a grave, they will place a rock on it uh, because flowers die and rocks don't. So that's, that's what they place to say, I remember you, um, this is, a, a, I will remember you forever as long as this rock will last. And then this is the picture I was telling you about. So those are all graves. Teeny tiny little graves as far as you can see. Here's that little church I was telling you about, the um, Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, the Church of the Nations is right over here. Uh, the Kidron Valley is here, and Jerusalem would be on this side. So the most of um, the Mount of Olives is just covered um, with these burial sites. I think it's a school. I think it's part of the Hebrew University, but I could be misremembering. Does anybody else remember? Yeah, it is a, an interesting choice to put a school. <laughs> so um, how long do you get to keep the space before they put somebody on top of you? You know, uh, you know I don't know that they do put people on top of you. Um, really? Well, I mean, you know, you've been doing it for three years. Well, they're running out of space, yeah, so I think... Um, Sorry. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it is possible, um, but I think that um, th this might be reserved for the wealthy. There are a lot of famous rabbis that are buried here and things like that. So I don't think if you're just an everyday Jewish person that you get to be buried at the Mount of Olives. Um, I think they do uh, reserve it, but they are running out of space and have been for a long time. Mm -hmm. It's because they used to put their bodies in a tomb. Yes. So the flesh would go away, and then they just had bones. Yes. That was about a year or so, I guess. And they would come, and there's a spot you can just put all your family's bones in these tombs. 
Um, and, and I wonder if that might be going on here if, if some of the bones are together, but these, um, when you get close-ups, they are, they are coffin-shaped. Uh, they are body-sized, so um, I, don't, I don't know if that's the same for the ones that are here or not. It's true. It, it happens all around yeah. the world. New Orleans, yeah. you're buried in a crib, and then after a year they come and they compress you. Yep. And, and put you in a little box. And so in here, uh, the grave can be lifted up in your box and be put in there with your ancestors' box or ashes as you can mm -hmm. see. The, mild, uh, the main part, the green part, is basically to the left. This is to the right side of the flank of the hill. But to the left, you'll see where the, uh, where you see the olive. Oh yes, um, it's actually right up here um, where where this Orthodox church is. That direction, that's going to be where the olive trees are. And the is kind of at the at the base. It it would be down here. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um, so the the Mount of Olives. We'll actually get into that right now. Um, so um, let's we'll talk about Jesus and the Mount of Olives. Um, so Jesus often went to the Mount of Olives to pray. Uh, the Mount of Olives is mentioned in every single one of the Gospels, um, and uh, in Luke and in John and, and many other places. It says, as was Jesus's custom, he went to the Mount of Olives to pray. Or it'll make a little side comment that says, you know, the disciples went over here, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to pray, um, and so that was kind of his place. And I wonder if it's because it was overlooking Jerusalem, if it was just had that panoramic view of the temple, and um, it's just nature. It's just a beautiful place, uh, but it also was overlooking. Um, the institution um, that he knew uh, he was um, he desired to change and the institution that he knew would ultimately kill him um, so the triumphal entry um, also begins at the Mount of Olives and so um, we um, he it talks about getting on the donkey and and riding across that Kidron Valley up to um, the the gate that was there so that picture that I showed at the very beginning uh, that would have been the route that Jesus likely would have gone um, just across that little valley um, through the triumphal entry um, and I just find it absolutely fascinating um, that um, Jesus's prayer in the garden also happened here and his betrayal also happened here so in the span of one week we have this triumphal entry and we have starting at the Mount of Olives um, all the way into Jerusalem and people are shouting Hosanna Hosanna in the highest they are treating him like a king riding in on a donkey the children in the temple are, are calling him the Messiah uh, people are laying taking their coats off and laying them down on the floor for um, his donkey to pass over there's that much reverence for this man who had healed so many people and that they'd heard so much about and and then a week later, um, Jesus is betrayed um, and crucified, starting in that very same place. Picture this, the very top of the Mount of Olives, of that mountain, is Bethany, right on the other side. That was the escape route. If I had to get out of Dodge, I had to go over that mountain to get out of it. And so basically, Jesus gets on this coat you remember walking down the street? That's mm -hmm. the same road <coughs> yep. Jesus went down. And it's extremely steep. Very extremely steep. steep. Mm -hmm. So here's Jesus on this colt, which had never been ridden, going down this extremely steep slope. And, and it, it's, a, it's a picture that uh, 
Which what kind of king does that? Right. Riding down a coat down this steep, steep slope. Right. And, and, and it's a very ironic. Mm-hmm. Visual. Absolutely. Any other questions up to this point? Is Bethany the same Bethany where Mary and Martha live? It is. Yes, they they live just right here on the on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would have been kind of just just behind the Mount of Olives, very close. Um, and then, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago um, with Josh's sermon, the um, ascension, Jesus' ascension, also happened on the Mount of Olives. So it says, uh, you know, the Mount of Olives, which was just a Sabbath day journey, this opens us up in Acts chapter 1. Uh, this is where Jesus was when he was taken up into heaven and where he uh, ascended to be seated at the right hand of the Father, which I find interesting because it goes right back to Zechariah's prophecy that um, this is where the first fruits, this is where the resurrection will occur, and Jesus was resurrected and then taken into heaven um, and in his human body was resurrected fully um, fully in that way Um, so there is a difference between the Mount of Olives and Gethsemane so Gethsemane means um, um, oil press and Gethsemane was a garden or this olive grove that would have been part of um, the Mount of Olives so it would be like saying um, you know um, Owl Creek Park in Brentwood. Um, Owl Creek Park is one place inside the larger Brentwood. Um, So this is um, likely a garden that was owned by somebody, probably very wealthy, um, and it was a place that Jesus liked to go and pray. And it's called Gethsemane because Gethsemane literally means oil press. Um, And so this is, um, I think when Laura uh, talked, um, I think I have actually, so here is an olive press. um, And the way that you would take the olives and you would crush them on the stone and a donkey would be kind of riding around in a circle crushing these olives and um, you've got these like reddish color this green color black olives all mixed in together um, and then they would have produced this um, red kind of oil um, like blood which I find interesting that Jesus um, was praying and sweat drops like blood uh, were coming from him in this oil press place. Um, so you would take this olive, uh, the olives, you would press them here, um, and then you would get this paste with the olives. And then from there, with this paste, you would put them in these baskets, um, and then you would press this, um, this picture's kind of sitting on top of the other one, you would press this massive weight on top of this basket that had this olive mixture in it, and it would produce uh, the oil. The oil would ooze out of the sides of that basket and down. Um, They would cut it into rock and so they would press all of this down and then the oil would flow down the rock into a place that they gathered it into jars. Um, And they did this three times. So you can see there are three very heavy stones here. These stones are about the size of um, uh, maybe two people each um, standing next to each other. They're massive, very heavy. So you would have done one first, then the other, and then the other um, with each of the three presses. And the very first press, that's where you're going to get the most pure oil. And that was what was used in the temple. So that would have been used for holy things. Um, The second press is what you would have used for cooking. And then the third press is what you would have used for um, lighting your olive oil lamps. 
Um, and so Jesus goes and he prays in this Garden of Gethsemane three times and he comes back and he tells the disciples and he's, you know, sweating these drops of blood and he's in, he's in agony. He's being pressed. He's being crushed by his despair um, in Gethsemane. Um, and he goes back to his disciples three times. Um, Wake up. Why are you sleeping? Come sit with me. Wake up. Why are you sleeping? Come sit with me. Any questions so far? All right. So um, one of the things that I found fascinating in my research for this week um, was the saying that Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was, let this cup pass from me. Um, And I find this very interesting um, because there were, so Jesus had just come from celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. And so in the Passover meal, there are these four cups of wine that you drink, and they're all very representative. Um, And then there's also um, this fifth cup which is called the cup of Elijah. Um, And it's the fifth cup in the Passover meal. And this cup does not get um, drunk. It stays on the table. Uh, It has wine in it um, and it is for Elijah. And the kids gather around it with that part in the the service and they look to see if it moves or shakes any because they wanna see is Elijah come in and take a sip of it. Uh, But it is the other cups, uh, they are lifted symbolically, they're talked about, um, they're prayed over and then they're drunk. But this cup just sits here, and at the end of um, the Passover service, it's poured back into the bottle, and um, nothing is really done with it. Um, And so as Jesus is praying, let this cup pass from me, um, I wonder if he's not talking about the cup of Elijah. Um, So the first cup was... I will take you out. So this is the Passover of course, is of course symbolizing um, the Exodus. And so these are the promises that God made. And the first promise is, um, I will take you out of that land. Um, you will no longer be in the land of Israel. Um, the second one is I will deliver you. I will deliver you from the bondage that you're in. The third one is I will redeem you. You will be my people. I will call you my own people. And then I will acquire you. And then the very fifth cup, which they do not drink, um, is called, I will bring you into the land. And the reason they don't drink this, and the reason it's called the cup of Elijah, is because they believe it has, it's yet to happen. Um, they have not been fully brought into the land. Uh, that this, this day of the Lord has not come. Uh, God's peace and shalom is not reigning in all of the world yet. And they believe that Elijah will come back, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and usher all of this in. And so this is left um, in, in hope that this is, and, and in the knowledge that this is what's coming. It's, a, it's that yearly reminder of this isn't it. Uh, this is part of our, our history um, and it's great and it's wonderful and this is who we are as a people, but there's more. There's this fifth cup that is also coming. Um, so there's, it's also called the cup of wrath. So um, if somebody would turn to Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 15 through 28 and read that out with um with the sound from the um ac it's a little loud so if you could speak up very loudly and read this please uh we'll talk about why this is called the cup of wrath jeremiah 25. this is what the lord the god of israel said to me take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because the sword I will send among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a ruin and an object of horror and scorn and cursing as they are today. 
Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his attendants, his officials, and all his people, and all foreign people there, all the kings of Uz and the kings of Philistines, and those of Ashkelon, Gaza, Akron, and the people left at Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, all the kings of Tyre and Sidon, the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dedan, Tema, Buz, and all that are in distant places, all the kings of Arabia and all the kings of foreign people who live in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, Elam, and Media, and all, all the kings of the north, near and far, one after the other, all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. And after all of them, the king of Shishak will drink it too. Then tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, drink, get drunk, and vomit, and fall to rise no more because of the sword I will send among you. But if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink, tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, you must drink it. This is not a pretty scene. This is not some warm and fuzzy scripture. Um, this is describing the day of the Lord, which on the one hand uh, is beautiful. It is the day that will usher in um, the shalom of God. It's the day that God will come and reign fully among his people and dwell among them. On the other hand, throughout the prophets, the day of the Lord is also a day of wrath for those that have not kept God's commandments, for those that are outside of the will of God. Um, and, and of course, first, so, so God is saying, take this cup, this cup of my wrath, and drink it. And he, the very first people he says to drink it is Jerusalem and the city of Judah, its kings and its officials. So they are not exempt from drinking this wrath. And then this cup of wrath will go from city to city and from king to king. Um, and they will be made to drink this cup of wrath. And if they don't accept it, um, it will be forced upon them. Um, and so this is, it's a disturbing picture. It's not one I like. It's not one, um, you know, that I want to read right before bed. Um, it's, it's a little troublesome and worrisome. Uh, but Jesus in this garden says, take this cup from me. Please don't make me have to drink this cup. I wonder if what Jesus is saying is this cup of wrath I'm going to take this on. That way the nations do not have to experience this. I'm going to experience the wrath of God momentarily before I'm resurrected, before I'm raised up. That way the nations do not have to experience the wrath of God. I may not be right on that. <laughs> um, so if there's debate, if there's anybody that wants to bring up anything, if anybody has any questions, I'm happy to open the floor because I certainly do not have the final word on that. Uh, this has, of course, been a topic for a few thousand years now, so um, not the definitive answer. So uh, if you have questions uh, or concerns, bring them up. This is a rough text. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I don't know the symbolism of that, but I do know that um, in some of the Gospels, uh, he did refuse to take that. They tried to give him this. Uh, it would have been medicinal. It would have eased his pain, and he refused it. All right. Um, so let's read together Matthew 14, 26 through 50. Um, 
And I want you to listen carefully to this because we're going to spend the rest of our time together um, discussing um, this text. Listen for what stands out to you. Listen to what uh, maybe you've never heard before. Um, maybe listen to uh, these words in, in place of the conversation we just had. Uh, focus on what stands out to you, uh, what you're hearing with fresh ears. Matthew 14, 26 through 50. Um, nope, that's not right. I think it is Mark 14. Yep, that's the one. <laughs> and when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And then they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to him, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple's teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. What stands out to you most from that passage? Does anybody want to share a word or a phrase that stood out to them? <coughs> It doesn't have to be deep. It doesn't have to be life-altering. Just something that stood out to you. Um, you know, as a soldier, I understand what Peter said. 
bring fruit. Yeah. So I kind of gave him a pass maybe a little bit as, as, as somebody understands because when he takes out the sword, he's, a, he, I mean, Jesus in a sense saved his life. Yeah. Because he's one out of, I don't know, how many, a hundred, I don't know. There's a bunch of people with swords. Absolutely. And when he did that, he was actually proving that what he said, I will die for you. Mm-hmm. Odds were pretty much against him, you know, and um, so Jesus saved him for another purpose. You know, I have to remember that. Um, you know what, you know, how he betrayed him and what he did and, and all that later probably is based on his absolute bewilderment yeah. that Jesus stopped him from dying for him. Right. He's like, I thought this was the right. path I was supposed to go on. Right. Like, why are you letting them take you? This is, we're supposed to be fighting together. I'll, I'll fight to the death for you, but I'm not going to just be led away to death for you. Hmm. Anything else? I think Jesus is pain. Mm-hmm. It's so deep. So yeah. Very bothersome. Absolutely. Yes, sir. I was struck by the how alone he went. Yeah. And he goes to these people that are close to him and they can't be with him. Uh, So I'm struck by how I think that's true of us as well that Mm. true grief happens alone. Yeah. There's a place in in deep grief that uh, even though we can be there for each other, that we can't fully do Right. Absolutely. That's a good point. I've often wondered about this passage and uh, the great agony that Jesus was going to suffer and was suffering at that particular moment. And it stands out for me that I don't believe Jesus was a coward. Yeah. Physically. if it was only physical pain and suffering and distress he was going through, you can get over that. Hmm. You know, there would be an end to that. But I believe that there is something deeper going on than just physical pain. So what, where was he going the next three days? Yeah. Uh, what was going to happen? He knew. But uh, like, like I said, I don't believe it was only physical distress. Mm-hmm. It was something much greater, much deeper than that. Yeah, absolutely. In John's account, there, when Judas comes in, soldiers all fall down. Yeah. Like paralyzed. And, and it just strikes me that the, the power of God was at work even then in the midst of all this mm-hmm. agony that was going on. God didn't change the course of events, but Absolutely. let it be known to those around mm-hmm. who are so inclined to believe it that God's here. Absolutely. Something's happening here that God's in the middle of. In John's account, uh, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, an angel is there ministering to him. Um, yeah, so God um, God was not far, although it, it may have felt like it. I'm kind of struck by the humanity of Jesus, too, of yeah. wanting those those disciples, those ones that he had 
been with for three years, he wanted them to be there for him. Yeah, and they absolutely. And they, they disappointed him. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that's hard for us to wrap our heads around because we think of Jesus uh, in terms of the Son of God. We think of um, the divinity of Jesus, and that certainly was an aspect, but we believe that Jesus was fully human and fully divine, and so his full humanity is on display here in this text. Um, this, this suffering, this anguish, this fear about what is going to happen, this desire to, um, to uh, you know, part of our humanity is that we want relationship with God, and, and I, I wonder in this time, he, he says, you know, God, I know anything is possible with you. If at all possible, please don't let it have to work out this way. Um, and I just, um, man, I just that just really resonates with me. Well, and to what you were just saying, I, I think that's the thing I carry away most of all is that prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can just have that be my prayer, yeah. not my will, but yours be done. Absolutely. So that's straight from the heart. Yeah. And if, if anybody could have asked God to change his mind, it would have been Jesus, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Man, um, so uh, this passage has always kind of perplexed me a little bit because if you're a first century Christian and um, you are writing an account of Jesus, why would you include this account where Jesus, uh, who's the great hero of this story, who is God incarnate, who is going to save the world, why would you include this account where Jesus ask for it not to happen, where Jesus cries and where Jesus begs God uh, to change things. Um, It seems like if you were putting together this account of, you know, this great hero, you would skip over all of this and Jesus would have bravely said, nope, I'm going to take it and I'm not upset about it at all. Um, You know, why do you suppose this is in here? Well, over the 2,000 years, people have struggled with this idea that Jesus was fully God, but fully human. Yeah. And for him to say, hey, if there's any other way, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm in. Mm-hmm. But, and, and so to me, that's just uh, evidence that he really was fully human. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes, you know, as Christians, the, the name implies we model ourselves after Christ. We, we seek God through being like Christ. And I think sometimes we say, oh, we can't be like Christ. He was the son of God. You know, that's unattainable. Um, but I think that, that the message perhaps to the first century audience who very likely would die for their faith, some of them on crosses, some of them in other ways of torture, some of them who might be asking, if there's any other way, um, please let it happen. Um, th- it's, it's an example of here is one more way in your suffering, in, in the hurt, uh, that you can be like Christ. Christ also suffered. Christ also uh, was in pain and agony. And, um, and that's okay. That doesn't make you less human. That doesn't make you less worthy. Um, it's okay to have those moments. And at the end of it, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. Piggyback on that humanity. You're in the Mount of Olives and you're debating, and if it's me, what's this escape route out of Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. Road right there beside the Mount of Olives. All I've got to do is get up, hike up that little hill, probably about 400, 500 yards, and I'm gone. Mm-hmm. I'm down into the uh, wilderness at that point in time. And, and I'm thinking, how he, me? Yeah. <laughs> Let's get on over this hill right yeah. now. Yeah. We're gone. But uh, uh, I, I'm sure there was a lot, as I said earlier, just the physical part you can hack. 
but it's that other stuff, and Jesus was debating that. Yeah. Any other thoughts or comments on that? Yes. There's a question, and to kind of piggyback on what Steve's saying about there being more going on here than the physical pain. I've heard it described that what he was facing was that God was removing himself from him. Hmm. And that was the ultimate, um, you know, that he was going to be without him. Yeah. It was a, a, a removal of his presence, of his uh, support. And uh, I think that's what he was acting as. Yeah. He was so dependent on him. Hmm. If there's any other way to, to do this, absolutely. Um, we only have a couple more minutes, and I do want to ask. Um, so, how does knowing the background of the five Passover cups help you um, understand Jesus' last hours? Um, does it? Did that provide any insight? Was that helpful, beneficial? Um, help you view things in a different way? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. So that was actually kind of helpful. But also in that one part, the disturbing part, it says that you'll never rise back up. Yeah. And that's a really important part of I didn't catch that. Wow. So like that you did rise yes. back uh-huh. up even with the last cup. Yeah. It, just a thought. Sorry. That's, no, that's fabulous. I didn't, I didn't catch that. So that's really, really fabulous. Anyone else? All right. Well, guys, it has been an absolute pleasure being with you for the summer. Um, I have loved our discussion. I hope that uh, you enjoyed it as well. Uh, If you ever have any questions or uh, anything, please let us know, and uh, we'll see you again later. Bye.